Good morning, everybody. Thank you for being here. It's just a blessing for me to see all of you. Don't be shy of the front row. Um, just feel like I wanted to sit down and chat with you instead of sitting up here and talking at you. But we will pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for being both the just and the justifier. We are thankful that you never compromise your holiness or lower your standards. You are always glorious. You are always high and lifted up. And we also are just so utterly thankful that you would pay the price that you did in the blood of your Son to purchase us who could never, could never meet the standard of your glory and your holiness to purchase us and redeem us and make us your own. We we are so thankful for you, for your heart to save, for your heart to finish what you've begun in us. You are our only hope and you are the only hope that we need. Lord, I pray that as we gather together this morning, it would be a time where you are exalted, that it would please you to um, be here amongst us as we look at your word, as we apply your word, as we share our lives with one another in discussion group, as we pray together. Father, I pray that you'd be pleased to use it as a time where we are equipped to better walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received to walk with our eyes fixed on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith you are a glorious God and we are so thankful for you in Jesus name, Amen Alright, I have just um, two announcements I think Um, the first one is about the homework that you picked up today We will turn that in next week, even though we won't actually have discussion groups next week. Next week will be, this is the second announcement, is a Christmas breakfast, Christmas party. Let's just call it a Christmas party, because it's a party. We're going to be just enjoying being together. We're going to sing. We're going to fellowship together. We're going to have breakfast, and then we'll have some time where um, individuals can share what God's doing in your life, how he's using Wellspring, or maybe how he's using something else, your Bible reading, or your small group, or your circumstances to draw you nearer to him, to help you understand his grace better. Um, so please plan to be here for that. I really look forward to that uh, joyful time together. Lori just does an amazing job having you walk in here and feel like you're at the North Pole, except it'll be warm and cozy, a warm and cozy North Pole. Um, so please plan to be here for that. If you haven't had a chance to sign up to bring food and you're able to do that, uh, there's a sign-up sheet on the back table. But um, even if you're not bringing food, come anyway, because you know those things. There's always ten times more food than people. So that's that's happening next week. Um, Oh, and the reason why you turn in your homework next week is this is because the questions are going to help us live out the gospel through the holiday season. And I just knew that you're just like me. And if we didn't turn it in next week, we wouldn't be doing it till January 4th. And it just wouldn't help us as much. So that's why we're doing it next week, because I know I need to do it before Christmas gets here. Well, go ahead and pull out your notebook. Flip it over to the back. It's where we start every week. And um, we could, if we weren't all such godly women, we could just start to zone out when we hear this, right? Um, it's early and it's a nice warm room. But what I really love about the purpose is it connects the disciplines for us. It helps us understand how one relates to another. So really listen to it this morning. We'll talk about the disciplines as we read through our purpose. So the Wellspring purpose is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church. That's us. That's us. It's to equip and encourage us. And if we just stop and think about that for a minute, it's really humbling to think about God's heart to save us, to place us in the body of his son under the headship of Jesus, and then to give us elders who have a heart to equip us, 
and encourage us. And what is it then that they want to equip and encourage us to do? Well, it's, to sh- it's that we would shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with God's word. And that's discipline one. We want to be diligent about bringing our heart to meet with Christ in our time with the word, to daily meet with him, to meet with him throughout his word, through the year. Um, Not so that we become myopic about looking at our heart, that we go off by ourselves and look at our heart and try to figure out what's going on there, but it's a, it, that heart is always in the light of the truth of God's word and the truth of who he is and the truth of what he's done on the cross. That's the only safe place to examine our heart. And that's, that's a place where we examine our heart and we find hope and we find encouragement. And that's why discipline one is so worth fighting for, to do everything we can to get God's word in front of us as much as we possibly can throughout our day. And um, if... if we find other people who are doing that in ways that are different than we are or look like they, they have a handle on something that we're struggling with. We ask. We say, help me. I want to learn from you. I want to do everything I can to get better at keeping God's word in my heart and in my mind and in front of my eyes and coming out of my mouth all the time. And then our purpose goes on to tell us why we shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word. And it's so that we live out the gospel. That's the result of spending time with Jesus in his word. The gospel transforms us, and consequently, it's going to transform how we live, how we think, how we speak, how we respond, how we serve, so that those in our home first, that's where discipline too is, and then even those at work and at school, wherever we go, can see and hear the impact that the gospel has made. And then the result of that is how our purpose concludes, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And I find that part of it to be really, really motivating. Because as long as I think that shepherding my heart is really primarily about me, or maybe just as big as my little world and the people I see and the places that I go, I can be sinfully content to be half-hearted in my pursuit of Christ. But when we remember that God has placed us in the body of Christ and that we're all members of it and his design for displaying the fullness of Christ is that we, by God's grace, would be building one another up in the faith then we realize how serious it is for us to be diligent about our own personal walk with Christ. See, when we are careless with discipline one and discipline two, it impacts our church. Now, on your notebook, under the purpose, you see the disciplines. Discipline one, the heart that we spent several months teaching on. And then uh, the last time we shifted into teaching on discipline two, the home. And that's where we pick up today with a lesson on Proverbs 14.1, which says the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. And by the time we're done today, uh, we should be convinced, if we're not already, that living out the gospel in our homes has to be built on how we shepherd our hearts with God's word. So we're going to start by looking at the verse um, word by word, and as we do that, we'll see some repeated themes that are going to give us a clearer understanding of what the verse means. And then we'll take those repeated themes and we will talk about how we can apply them, how they can actually help us live out the gospel in those closest relationships, whether it's where we live or if we live alone, it's that with those people who know us best, the people who see us with our hair down, the people who rub us the wrong way. Um, all of us have people in our lives that we need to be thinking about how to live out the gospel with in our household. Um, all right, so that we're going to start. I'll go ahead and turn to Proverbs 14:1, um, and also just you'll see in your notes. These notes are quite a bit different than what you've had before. Um, 
two things that I that I hope will be helpful about that. One is that we're not going to read every last verse, but I, I wanted you to be able to have it right there in front of you when we're going through some of these different themes from Proverbs to, to just see there's something weighty about seeing over and over and over again how often contentiousness is mentioned or the sluggard is mentioned or something like that. And then also, um, if... You, if there's a particular area that you want to use scripture to shepherd your own heart in and, and use that as a daily part of your time with the Lord to be, um, tra- you know, using God's word to transform your thoughts, to be thinking more biblically and living more biblically in these areas, they're all right there together for you. All right. So let's t- th- start by just thinking about this verse literally. The verse starts off by saying that the wise woman builds her house. Now, what would that look like? Now, where would she have to be to be building her house? Anyone? She'd have to be in her home, right? You can't build a house unless you're there. Now, what would she have to do to make that happen? She's going to have to make plans. She's going to have to work hard. She's going to have to persevere. She's going to need effort and skill. She's going to need blueprints and supplies. She's going to need perseverance because this is a big job to build a house, right? Um, But why would she do this? Why would she go to the trouble to build a house? Why do people build houses? To live in. That's right. You need a house to live in. And a house provides all kinds of things for the people who live there. It provides a place of protection, provision, Nurture, fellowship, hospitality. It's a place for teaching, for encouragement, where burdens can be shared and joys can be shared. A lot of important things happen in a home. But what about the other woman? This woman is also in her house. She's the foolish woman, but she's not building. She's doing what? She's tearing down. And how is she doing that? What are her tools? She's doing it with her own hands. You know, I think about tearing down a house, I think about a sledgehammer or a bulldozer or maybe a match. But she's using her hands. Now, how would you do that? Are you picking the mortar out from between the bricks bit by bit so your fingers are all torn up? Are you busting out the windows with your fists so you're bloody? I mean, this would be a very painful process. But think about how slow it would be. Think about how consistent it would have to be for these efforts that you can do with your hands to actually tear down a house. And the result, then, is that all the things that a home provides for those who live in one are gone. Gone is this place of protection and rest, nurture, fellowship, hospitality. Now, I think those are really vivid pictures. So just hang on to those for a minute. We're going to come back to them after we just take a little step back and make sure we understand how to approach the book of Proverbs. So first of all, let's just ask the question, where did we get the book of Proverbs? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 3, God appeared to King Solomon in a dream, and he asked Solomon what he wanted God to give him. And Solomon asked for an understanding heart so that he could lead the nation. And in response, in 1 Kings 4, it says that God gave Solomon very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs. And a portion of those are preserved for us in the book of Proverbs. Now, Proverbs in its bigger context. um, Proverbs is a book of wisdom. Um, It examines all kinds of situations in life, and it evaluates, is this wise or is this foolish? So, as people who now live after the cross, who live after Jesus' death and resurrection, what do we do with that? What does that have to do with the gospel? Well, Proverbs does offer some practical help for fools, such as parental discipline. But it only offers one true cure 
for foolishness. Proverbs makes it clear that the fool's only ultimate hope is for God, who is the eternal possessor of wisdom, to make him wise. And when God does that, the fool is cured of his foolishness. His affections, his desires, his thinking, and his living are transformed. Now that's what God revealed through Solomon. But God has continued to unfold his redemptive plan. And so now, as those who live after the cross, we have the benefit of more revelation. And we find in 1 Corinthians 1 that although the message of the cross is foolishness to fools, to those who are perishing, it is in fact the power of God for salvation. Christ is the wisdom of God, and he has become for the believer wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So when we see the fool in Proverbs, we need to think this is one whose only ultimate hope is to cry out to God for wisdom. And because we live after the cross, um, we know that God's wisdom has been more completely displayed in the gospel. That means that as Proverbs exposes wisdom in our lives, we see that as evidence of God's grace working in us. And as Proverbs exposes foolishness, In our lives, we look to God's grace in the gospel for the power to turn from that foolishness and to walk in wisdom, to walk in newness of life. And I just want to give credit where credit is due. Those thoughts on connecting Proverbs with the gospel, I found really helpful, and I got them from Omri Miles. He wrote a paper on the fool in Proverbs, and I just really appreciated how he made those connections. So I wanted to share that with you. Now, there are a few more helpful principles for understanding Proverbs. The first is that a proverb is usually a short saying about life. um, Sorry, it's a short saying that gives insight on life and human behavior. But it's not a prophecy, it's not a promise, and it's not an absolute doctrine. So, for example, Proverbs 16.7 says that when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. And that's generally true. But our Savior, Jesus Christ, his ways were always pleasing to God the Father, and his enemies were not at peace with him. Now, that doesn't mean that the proverb is wrong. It just means it's not a promise. It's not a doctrine. It's a proverb. It's a general insight into life. Okay? Now, another uh, background piece of information about proverbs that can be helpful is to understand that it's poetic-like poetic literature. That means there will be figurative language and poetic devices. Um, Particularly in Hebrew poetry, there's something called parallelism, where an idea is stated, and then the next statement either restates that or explains that, sometimes by giving um, a synonymous thought, and sometimes by stating it in opposite terms. And that's what we have in our verse. We learn more about the wise woman by learning something about the foolish woman. Those thoughts are right next to each other. And then finally, in order to understand Proverbs correctly, we need to understand why it was written. Now, if you think back, if you ever took a high school English class, you probably had to write an essay. And if you wrote an essay, you might have learned that you need to have an introduction where you tell them what you're going to tell them, and then you have some body paragraphs where you tell them what you want to tell them, and then you have a conclusion where, rocket science here, you tell them what you told them, right? And that's a lot of times how speeches go, literature sometimes has those elements, and it's not a bad way to dive into studying a book of the Bible. So, um, let's see, where are we? If we do this with Proverbs, we find in Proverbs 1-7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then the last proverb, Proverbs 31, verse 30, says that a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. And then in addition to seeing fearing the Lord at the beginning and fearing the Lord at the end, it shows up throughout Proverbs. So, for example, Proverbs 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 15, the fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom. Now, why does that matter? Well, seeing that this repeated idea in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, helps us understand that the wisdom in Proverbs um, teaches how a person lives who does fear God. It instructs us 
and it trains us to live wisely, and it evaluates us. It reveals the true condition of our hearts. So I might say, I fear the Lord. But if I look in Proverbs and see that my life is better described as foolish than wise, then I need to take a look at that. Am I just deceiving myself into thinking that I fear the Lord when I really don't? Or maybe it's a particular area of my life that I'm blind to where I don't fear the Lord. So the Proverbs instructs us in wisdom as well as reveals our hearts. So that's a little bit of context. Now, you should already be at Proverbs 14.1. And again, the verse says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. We took a minute to visualize what's going on, just in a really literal sense there. We have one woman building her house, another woman tearing it down. It's a contrast between two different kinds of women and the influence that they have on their homes. So we want to be home builders, right? We want to be wise. So let's ask, what does Proverbs tell us about wise women and foolish women? Or we can make it more general and just say generally, what does it say about good women and bad women? Well, Proverbs describes good women as gracious, prudent, excellent, that she fears the Lord. Um, And we can take that a little bit deeper and just look and see what Proverbs says about the word wise. Now, I thought this was really cool. You know, with all the great Bible study tools that are available on computers now, it's just nothing flat. You can make, make a list of all the verses that have the word wise in them in the book of Proverbs. And when I did that, it tells you lots of things about being wise. And the whole book of Proverbs is about being wise. But it's amazing that the majority of those verses address one of two things. Now, the first thing is your first blank. And it describes how we listen. It describes a wise person as one who is teachable. There is an eagerness to receive instruction and learning as well as rebuke and discipline. Now, you can see that you've got those verses there in your notes. Proverbs 8, he heeds instruction and doesn't neglect it. Proverbs 9, he loves the one who reproves him. Proverbs 10, he receives commands. Proverbs 15, he listens to life-giving reproof. Proverbs 19, he listens to counsel and accepts discipline. And Proverbs 9, when he's taught, he becomes wiser still. Proverbs 8, he also listens to wisdom, watching daily at her gates. There you see that eagerness. It doesn't matter what the nature of the instruction is, whether it's wisdom or teaching or correction or commands or reproof or discipline. The one who is wise sees the value in all of those kinds of instruction. She's receptive. So then our second blank, um, the second big umbrella that covered just a huge number of those verses on wisdom Uh, describes how we speak. And it's summarized well in Proverbs 16.23. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth. Jesus made the same point in Luke 6. Um, The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart, which points us right back to discipline one. Proverbs 10 says that a wise man restrains his lips. Proverbs 12 says he isn't rash, but rather his tongue brings healing. Proverbs 13, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. It turns aside from the snares of death. Proverbs 14, the wise one's lips protect him. Proverbs 15, his tongue makes knowledge acceptable and his lips spread knowledge. And Proverbs 25, his wise reproof is beautiful like gold jewelry. These verses show us that to be wise, one must guard her heart well, so that what comes out of her mouth is thoughtful, helpful, protective, instructive, and winsome, even when giving a reproof. So those are two key aspects to being wise, how we listen and how we speak. Now, let's take a look at what we can learn from the bad women in Proverbs. And it turns out that two kinds of bad women show up over and over again. Um, This is your next blank on your notes. The first is the immoral woman. You see her described as the harlot or the adulteress in Proverbs. Um, 
For example, Proverbs 2, to deliver you from the strange woman, from the adulteress who flatters with her words, that leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. And you see it throughout Proverbs. Proverbs 5, 6, 7, 22, 23, 30. Um, just on and on. And then almost as often, your next blank for the bad woman in Proverbs is the one who is contentious. And again, you see throughout Proverbs, um, for example, in Proverbs 19, a foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. There's just a lot of great word pictures here in Proverbs, aren't there? The wisest man in the world, Solomon, under inspiration from the Holy Spirit, made his top two warnings for women about sexual immorality and contentiousness. These are a big deal. They are mentioned over and over again. So if we want to summarize women in Proverbs, we could say wise women are teachable and they speak carefully. And you should have, I think that's probably printed in your notes. Uh, but women are warned against being immoral or contentious. Are we good? Are the notes making sense? Yes, no. Yes. Are the notes making sense? Is there a box that said that there? Yeah, back page. Okay. So that brings us then to the next part of the verse. Um, so the verse has another contrast, not just wise and foolish women, but it's also what they're doing. We have women who are building, and we have women who are tearing down. So let's take a look and see what Proverbs says about that. Um, As for building, the repeated thought is wisdom. By wisdom, a house is built. By understanding, it is established, which just underscores what we've already seen in Proverbs 14.1. The wise woman who builds her house, the teachable woman, the woman who is careful with her words, um, that is the woman who builds. And as for tearing down, Proverbs 11 says a city is torn down by the mouth of the wicked. And that's a contrast with what we saw about wisdom, where words are to be helpful and instructive. Proverbs 24 talks about tearing down when referring to the broken down wall of the sluggard. That word for broken down is the same as the word for tearing down. So if we want to summarize what Proverbs has to say about building and tearing down, we would just say wisdom builds and a wicked mouth and idleness tear down. So the next thing in Proverbs 14.1 is houses. Let's take a look at what else Proverbs has to say about houses. On the positive side, when wisdom is associated with a house, we see, for example, in chapter 9, that the house is built. Food is prepared. The table is set. Understanding is offered. You see both practical service and shepherding going on. When we look at the excellent wife in Proverbs 31, we find a woman who gives food to her household. She's not afraid of snow for her household because she knows that they're clothed. And we see a woman who looks well to the ways of her household and she does not eat the bread of idleness. Um, So there's an overlap with what we've already seen. We see industriousness and service instead of laziness and idleness. We see understanding as opposed to contention. Now, when we look at the negative side of houses, what I think is really interesting is that there's two repeated traits again, and they're the very same traits that we saw when we looked at the bad women, sexual morality and contentiousness. For example, Proverbs 2.18 says, The adulteress's house sinks down to death. Proverbs 7, The harlot is cunning of heart. Her feet don't remain at home. Proverbs 9 is really interesting. It talks about the woman of folly, a foolish woman, and we find her sitting, being idle at the doorway of her house, trying to seduce those who pass by. So just over and over again, we see repeated ties between a woman and her household and her work ethic and her purity. Now, as I mentioned, contentiousness is also a repeated warning for the home. So you see that, for example, in Proverbs 17.1. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. So if we want to summarize what Proverbs has to tell us about houses, we could say homes are blessed by the industrious woman who cares for the needs of their households and speak words of understanding, but homes are harmed by idleness, 
an indifference to the needs of others, by immorality, and by contentiousness. And so that brings us to how the foolish woman is tearing down her house with her own hands. So again, we're going to take a look and see what Proverbs has to tell us about hands. What do wise hands do? What do foolish hands do? And interestingly, almost every single um, reference in Proverbs to hands refers to the same thing. For example, in Proverbs 10.4, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Over and over again, there are these references to laziness, folding of the hands to rest, the negligent hand, the slack hand, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, his hands refuse to work. Or we see the opposite, diligent hands, hands that gather, hands that are stretched out to work, hands that are extended to help the needy. So again, we just see this warning against idleness that we first saw when we looked at that word tearing down and the broken down wall of the sluggard. We see that it's popped up along the way, and now it, when we look at hands, it's just everywhere. That's a real warning. So we can summarize hands by saying wise hands work and serve, foolish hands don't. So now we have a lot more to build on in understanding and applying Proverbs 14.1. As we've broken it down and looked at each word, we have three repeated warnings. The first is against sexual morality, the second is against idleness, and the third is against contentiousness. All three of these warnings are repeated, again, throughout the New Testament. Titus 2, 3 through 5, teaches that the opposite of these, being pure, workers at home, and kind, are among the primary ways that women protect the reputation of God's word. Now, these are serious warnings, and we do need to understand what they mean and how to heed them. But we also need to remember our hope. So go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 2.24. When I look at this list of warnings, they have my name all over them. I cannot tell you how hard it is to prepare a lesson about idleness and contentiousness and sexual morality when I look beyond just the outward manifestation of that. I sin badly, and probably you do too. Um, But if we just stop there, we're just going to feel crippled spiritually, and that's not the goal. That's not what Christ came to do. So look at 1 Peter 2.24. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. You were forgiven. You were cleansed. You were made new. So if these warnings expose sin in our lives now or in the past, we repent. We turn away from our sin and we turn to Jesus Christ. We need to confess that sin. And then we need to believe God's word. Um, where in 1 John 1, 9 it says that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. We must believe the completeness of Christ's work on the cross to remove condemnation from all who come to him in repentance and faith. Knowing what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross gives us the courage to dig into these warnings and see what they expose in our heart because those who've been purchased by Jesus to be his possession are eager to grow and become more like him. So we've looked at Proverbs 14.1 and we've torn apart the book of Proverbs with a fine-tooth comb and gone from Proverbs 1 to Proverbs 31 and back again a few times to see all the things it has to say about wise women and foolish women and building and tearing down and houses and hands. And we pulled it all together and found three warnings. Um, So we're going to look at these warnings and we're going to look past the behavior only. We don't want to not be concerned with behavior, but we don't want to stop at that. We want to look at our hearts so that we can see where there might even be just the seeds of these behaviors threatening to send out roots and tear down our homes. So the first warning is against sexual morality. And if we want to think about this on a heart level, a question we can ask ourselves is, where are our affections? So turn to Matthew 5. 
It's almost funny to talk about sexual immorality with women who come to Bible study at 7 o'clock on Saturday morning, right? (laughs) But, because after all, it means you're so godly that you're here, doesn't it? No. Um, But God took a lot of space in Proverbs to address this, and he addresses it throughout his word, throughout his word. In fact, I've been reading in Ezekiel lately, and I told my girls, you know, if you're just ever tempted to compromise your purity, you just need to read Ezekiel, because you're going to see just how much God hates this. Um, But God says a lot about it throughout his word to warn us against it, and so we need to take that seriously, because sexual immorality among women tears down homes. Now, you might have just thought, well, I don't do that. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not fornicating. And if you thought that, that's good. That protects your home. But Jesus doesn't let us leave it there. Um, Go ahead and look at Matthew 5. We're going to read beginning in verse 27, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already, in his heart. So according to Jesus, we can commit adultery in our heart before we ever sin physically. So let's say we sinfully allow ourselves to have a grumbling, complaining, critical attitude towards our husband. Now if we do that, we may be tempted to admire someone else's husband because he's so gentlemanly, He's sweet, he serves, he's such a great dad, he opens doors. Maybe he just has some quality that our husband doesn't. We may be easily flattered by men at school or men at work, and we find find ourselves kind of mulling over their comments and their compliments rather than taking those thoughts captive and thinking thoughts that please the Lord, thoughts that are pure. The very same danger is there for single women. Uh, Being discontent in in our circumstances can lead down a path of thinking that a man is what we need to make us happy. And that can be a temptation to compromise our purity in order to get what we think we need. See, these are the first steps toward immorality, and they start with a discontented heart being so focused on a desire for different circumstances, different husband, whatever, um, that we're so focused on that that we're not willing to trust God instead. Now turn to Psalm 73. This is not just a matter of whether or not we're having sex with a man we're not married to. It's first and most about whether or not our affections are for Christ? Are we seeking our satisfaction in him alone? Listen to how the psalmist expresses his affection for the Lord. Beginning in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Now, how do we actually live out that life of affections for Jesus that results in purity in how we live? Well, one way that that's going to be displayed in our lives is it's going to influence how we dress. Now, let me just ask you, why did God design clothes? We just covered this in our our Sunday sermons last summer, didn't we? Where did clothes first show up? Genesis 3, right? Now, were they designed to cover or to expose? Right? They, They were designed to cover. They weren't designed to draw attention. They were designed to cover, to cover the shame of our nakedness exposed by sin. But you might not know that to look at the world around us. We live in a very raunchy culture. And since we are immersed in provocative dress, seductive images, very sensual entertainment, we are always in danger of becoming desensitized to the indecency of what the culture calls fashion. 
Now, not all fashion, but sometimes a lot of it. And even if we don't buy into wearing immodest styles, we are very vulnerable to buy in to the vanity peddled in the marketplace. How we dress is not first and most about our personal style or our preferences or what others think. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we need to dress to the glory of God. Not so frumpy that it puts others off. Not so done up that it attracts lots of attention, but to dress in a way that is appropriate, that doesn't draw attention to ourselves by either what we're wearing or what we're not wearing. Sometimes we as women easily forget or we just don't get the struggle that many men have for pure thoughts. We need to remember and just believe that a lot of men are visual. Um, Once they see something, that image can be very hard to get out of their minds and it can be very hard for them not to think about that, what they see, in a sinful way. So, we need to dress and act and speak in a way that makes it easy for the men in our lives to be pure when they're around us. That doesn't put our brothers in Christ in a constant battle for purity with their eyes and their thoughts. We can love them by seeing them as the weaker brother at that point, loving them enough to help them not sin. That's one result of having our affections be for our Savior, that we're going to be committed to our brother's purity. Now, another place to examine for purity is in our entertainment. Maybe movies, TVs, books, Christian fiction. Um, We just need to ask ourselves, what does our entertainment leave us thinking about? What does it leave us wanting and desiring? Does it cultivate contentment? Or does it cultivate discontentment? Does it guard the purity of our thoughts? I'll tell you where I, where it pops out for me. It's like what, what goes flying through my mind is I'm falling asleep. If it's stuff that doesn't belong there, then I need to look at what I'm putting in. It's my convic- conviction that it's not guarding the purity of our thoughts and our affections when we imagine or read or watch interactions designed only for a husband to enjoy with his wife. I only want to have those thoughts and feelings for one person, and that's the man I'm married to. How else can I say I'm reverencing my husband, like Ephesians 5.33 commands, if I don't even keep my imagination for him alone? The other um, danger of romance entertainment is it can plant seeds of discontent. Um, as we're tempted to compare real life to the imaginary. Um, And that just makes us more vulnerable to the temptations to forming friendships and bonds with men that are not wholesome, that lead nowhere good. Purity is an act of worship toward God. It's a display of our trust in God. It's a confidence in his overabundant sufficiency for every need. It's placing our affections first and most on Jesus himself. So we build our homes by guarding and cultivating our affections for Christ and cultivating only pure thinking, pure desires, pure living, pure interactions with all men. Now for each of these warnings, you'll see a scripture, especially to help with heart shepherding on the outline. And so for the warning against immorality, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 is really helpful. You might want to memorize it or just review it regularly to help keep the gospel's call to purity in the front of your mind. It says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. 
Then that brings us to the second warning, which is against idleness. And our question for heart examination there is, whom do we serve? So Proverbs shows us that one thing that tears down a home is idleness. But what is idleness? It can certainly be not working, just flat-out laziness. Not working and avoiding work, purposefully. But does that necessarily mean that if we're busy, then that means we're not idle? Well, C.J. Mahaney wrote this on his blog, and he just puts it so well, I want to share it with you. He wrote, Lazy? Not me. I'm up early, up late. My schedule is filled from beginning to end. I love what I do, and I love getting stuff done. I attack a daily to-do list with the same intensity I play basketball. Me, lazy? I don't think so. Or, at least I didn't think so. That is, until I read about the difference between busyness and fruitfulness. And realized just how often my busyness was an expression of laziness not diligence. He writes, I forget now who first brought these points to my attention, but the realization that I could be simultaneously busy and lazy, that I could be a hectic sluggard, that my busyness was no immunity from laziness, became a life-altering and work-altering insight. What I learned is that busyness does not mean I am diligent, Busyness does not mean I am faithful. Busyness does not mean I am fruitful. And by the way, as I have studied this, those three words have really been helpful in just evaluating when I'm looking at what I'm doing with my day. Is this being faithful? Is this being diligent? Is this being fruitful? But CJ continues, recognizing the sin of procrastination and broadening the definition to include busyness has made a significant alteration in my life. The sluggard can be busy, busy neglecting the most important work and busy knocking out a to-do list filled with tasks of secondary importance. When considering our schedules, we have endless options, but there are a few clear priorities and projects derived from our God-assigned roles that should occupy the majority of our time during a given week. And there are a thousand tasks of secondary importance that tempt us to devote a disproportionate amount of time to completing an endless to-do list. And if we are lazy, we will neglect the important for the urgent. Now this kind of idleness can be so tricky to see because we might be busy doing things that aren't sinful in and of themselves, but if we're not being diligent with our primary responsibilities, like shepherding our heart to meet with God in his word, and ministering to those in our household with our heart for the gospel and fulfilling our household responsibilities and living out what God has done in our life in the body of Christ, um, then we need to examine our hearts for idleness. We may be choosing to do what we want instead of what's hard. We might be neglecting a responsibility or even a relationship. The other side of this is understanding That to be diligent doesn't mean that we never rest. Rest is from the Lord. Psalm 127.2 says, He gives to his beloved sleep. 1 Timothy 6.17 tells us that God richly supplies us all things to enjoy. Being diligent doesn't mean no entertainment. It doesn't mean no relaxation. It doesn't mean that I can use diligence as an excuse for being a slave or making my family a slave of my home, caring more about how things look or what other people think than I care about the people who live there or serving the Lord. That's why we spent several months talking about the heart. Because this is a heart issue. That's the point. That's why we ask the question, whom do I serve? Sometimes we serve the people we live with best by sitting down and just spending time with them. And most of the time, we are most available to do that when we have been joyful, thankful, diligent stewards of the time that God has given us all day long. Serving others is a privilege. Whatever that looks like in your home, are you thankful for those opportunities? Do you prioritize them? Do you ask the people in your household how you can be most helpful to them? 
Now you can see in your notes that our scripture for heart shepherding in the area of diligence is Colossians 3:22 to 24. This was written specifically to believers who were actually slaves. They were somebody else's piece of property. Now, if a slave is exhorted to live this way, how much more can we gain encouragement to serve Christ with our labors? So Colossians 3.22 says, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external services, those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. When we use God's word to shepherd our hearts into biblical thinking about work, then we will find ourselves seeking him throughout our day, praying, Lord, how can I best serve you right now? And we'll be seeking him for wisdom as we make our plans and we make our schedules, remembering that we are really stewards of what he has given us, including our time and our relationships. Well, that brings us to our third warning, which is against contentiousness. Now, the question to get at the heart for this one is, whom do you trust? Go ahead and turn over to Exodus 17. Now, one of the most sobering examples of contentiousness in the word is seen in the Israelites during their wilderness wanderings. Exodus 17 begins this way. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So they have a legitimate need. They need water. But the problem is how they respond to their need. Verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Well, now, who said anything about testing the Lord? I can imagine the Israelites saying, Hey, we just told you to give us some water. What's wrong with that? Everyone needs water. Right? But God's word calls that testing the Lord. As the passage continues, the quarreling gives way to grumbling and fear and accusations. God is so gracious. In spite of their sinful response to their need, he provided water. But he gives them a lasting lesson in verse 7. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, I love this passage, and I just would love to park here and teach on this all morning. But three particular things that I want you to see here is, first of all, it shows us that a genuine need does not excuse a sinful response. They needed water. And we're going to have needs, right? We're going to have struggles. We're going to have problems and conflicts. But they don't justify a sinful response. Secondly, it teaches us that God's view of contentiousness is that we're actually testing him. Now, they were being contentious with Moses, with a man, with their leader, with the authority God had given them. And God says, no, actually what that is is you're testing me. You don't believe that I'm really among you and that I'm working for your good here. And third, it shows how contentiousness breeds a lot of other sins. It breeds grumbling. It breeds fear. It breeds accusations. And this same pattern shows up throughout Israel's wilderness wanderings, even near the end of their wanderings, after they have witnessed 40 years of God's faithfulness. Manna on the ground, six days a week. Six days, enough for, for the next two days. Every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year, they've seen God's faithfulness, and they still continue to be contentious instead of remembering and believing God's goodness to them. So, what does it mean to be contentious? Well, the definition says it means to be given to angry debate, to be quarrelsome. It can be translated strife or discord. Proverbs addresses a contentious woman in particular five different times. Um, 
twice, she's compared to a constant dripping. You ever have a drip in the shower and you're going to sleep at night and you're like, oh, I really have to get up and turn that off. Okay. Um, it, it's told us that a con- the contentious woman is impossible to restrain. It's like trying to grasp the wind or grasp oil. There's just no getting a hold of it. It's going to drip through. It's better to live in a corner of a roof. Twice we're told that. And once we're told it's better to live in a desert land than to live with a contentious woman. Now just think about those comparisons. Has it ever crossed your mind, get up in the morning and you know, I'm feeling pretty crabby today. I think I'm going to go tell everybody else in my house they should just move to the roof. You know, we don't think that way. I think because we don't think it's that serious. Well, everybody has bad days. God's word says it's that serious. Uh, Proverbs reveals that contention is stirred up by anger, by arrogance, and by gossip. It also creates defensiveness. Proverbs 18 says contentions are like the bars of a citadel. Just pushes people away. Now what might contention look like? Well, it could be nagging. Maybe you just can't let something drop. Maybe it's being quick to speak and slow to listen. Sometimes we might find ourselves being perceived as contentious when we didn't mean to be. Or we find ourselves maybe holding our tongue but harboring contentious thoughts and attitudes. Many times we fall into being contentious because we're just not being careful, especially with our words. So, what is the opposite of being contentious? Remember when we looked at the word wise, we saw two qualities that are essential to overcoming contentiousness. We saw first that the wise are careful how they listen. They're teachable. They have an eagerness to receive instruction and learning as well as rebuke and discipline. And second, we learned that the wise woman guards her heart well so that her words are thoughtful, helpful, protective, instructive, and winsome, even when she gives a reproof. It's being careful how we listen and how we speak, and that is the opposite of contentiousness. Other antonyms include easygoing, friendly, gracious, pleasant, cooperative, peaceable. Thankfully, we have this. We have the riches of God's word, which supplies the wisdom that we need to flee contention beginning with our hearts. So the first place we're going to think about is Genesis 2. That's where Eve was created to be Adam's helper. So on a really basic level, let's just ask ourselves, am I being helpful with what I'm saying, how I'm saying it, when I'm saying it, to whom I'm saying it? Interestingly, in Proverbs, many of the instances of strife and contention are in the context of people stirring up contention among others. So when we have a need or a concern or a complaint, there is a right way to deal with that, and that includes going to the right person and only the right person. Proverbs 15 includes these wise words. It says, how delightful is a timely word. And it also says the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. So we can ask ourselves, is this the right time to speak? Have I pondered my answer? Sometimes when we ponder, we'll realize that we don't need to speak at all. We can also look at the Proverbs 31 woman. Proverbs 31 tells us that she does her husband good and not harm. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So we can ask ourselves, is this good and beneficial for those I live with? For my husband, my children, my parents, my brothers and sisters, my roommates? Or will it bring harm? Is it wise? Does it promote understanding? Again, not only in what we say, but when, how, to whom we say it. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 5. Let's go ahead and read verses 23 and 24 together. It says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering 
at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now this is, this is just huge. The wise woman who builds up her home makes a priority of reconciling relationships. Now, you can just see the priority that it has in these verses. Jesus is speaking to Jews before he's gone to the cross. There's still a temple standing in Jerusalem um, where, where good Jews would go and make their offerings and make their sacrifices. Sacrifices, And he says, even if you're there in the temple and you're making your offering, and right then you remember that you've sinned against your brother somehow, sinned against your sister or someone in your household, you drop what you're doing. You just leave it there and you go and you make things right um, with that person before you make your sacrifice. And this is something we need to look at. It's just a part of our lives. It's going to happen over and over again. We're going to have sin we need to confess. We're going to need to seek forgiveness. And it can become something that isn't just a dread. That's not just this awful thing we have to go do. It can actually become um, something that we look forward to because it's what God uses to restore broken relationships and cultivate peace in our households. Um, so we, even if we um, aren't sure, we don't need to wait till it's something big where we clearly came and punched him in the nose or something. If you even suspect that maybe your tone was offensive or that your facial expression might have been a stumbling block to somebody, you know, go and ask them. Find out if it's clear that you have sinned against them. Then confess that. Seek forgiveness. Ask them to forgive you. Now, Matthew 7 is just a couple pages over. Let's read verses 3 through 5 there. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, okay, get your imagination going again. I love all these word pictures. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye. Behold, there is a log in your eye. You hypocrite, take that log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This isn't say don't deal with the specks. But there's an order here. right? Logs have to be taken out before specks. Um, And so we start by asking ourselves, have I preached the gospel to myself first? Am I more concerned with my own sin or with someone else's? Our sinfulness can pop up not only in what we say and what we do, but also in how we respond to someone else. Respond to their sin or just respond to them doing something we don't like. Um, And their sin, their choices, their behavior never, never, never excuses ours. So we need to ask ourselves, is my sin causing me to assume someone else is in sin when maybe they're not? Am I assigning motive? Assuming the worst? Or am I dealing with the log in my own eye and going to them with grace? Because I am eager for restoration. Restoration to godly character, restoration of relationships, so that God is glorified and Christ is put on display among his people, so that the church is strengthened. Am I going with humility, ready to have somebody else put their eyes on my soul? And help me see things more accurately, more biblically. Or, after dealing with a log in our own eye, has the speck disappeared? Many times I find that to be the case. Often we realize that there really is no issue once we've held our hearts up to the light of God's word. Now you will notice with each of these biblical principles for wise communication, there is no impulsiveness, there's no venting, There's no carelessness. There's no just, I want to give you a piece of my mind. There's no stewing, preparing speeches. You know what I'd say if I just really got the chance. If we are to be wise women, if we are to be women who build up our home, then we will not be quick to speak. We will think things over in light of God's word. We will pray about them, examine ourselves, repent of our own sinful attitudes and responses, 
And then we'll go to one another with that heart full of grace, confessing sin and seeking reconciliation and unity. When we are wise with our words, we are placing our trust in God, confident of his faithfulness to work for his glory and our good as we obey him. So, to fight this sin, I guess you can tell where I need to be extra careful. I gave you three for the price of one. The rest of them, you just got one verse. Here you get three principles anyway. The first is to remember God's character. Remember Exodus um, 7, let's see, was it Exodus 17 or Exodus 7? Whichever one it was. Exodus and then Numbers 20, again, very similar story about how Israel tested God instead of trusting God. So remember God's character. Um, the second principle that is very helpful helpful for me is from 1 Corinthians 13.7 where it tells us that love always hopes. The principle that comes from that is make charitable assumptions. Don't assume the worst. And then 1 Timothy 1.15 you have there where Paul talks about him being the chief of sinners. Um, and so the principle there is don't, under, don't underestimate our own sinfulness. Those principles right there, I have to say, if I can remember those or even any of those, when I'm in a place where I'm tempted to be contentious, they tear down that fight inside so quickly. God's word is so powerful and so helpful. And I just really encourage all of us to persevere in taking hold of God's word and using it to battle our sin. So, as we seek to be wise women who build up our homes, we must always keep God's grace in view. The grace that brings salvation is the very same grace that instructs us to deny ungodliness and to live righteously. And so we look to what Christ has done on the cross, what he has completed at the cross to be able to do this. Proverbs shows us how desperately we need Christ who has become for us wisdom from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. It is just a treasure chest. And Lord, you are so gracious to give us your Holy Spirit that that can take it and apply it and transform us. God, we are so desperate for you, even as those who have been made new by you. Daily, we need you. We need your grace. We need your strength to take hold of your word and to live it out. Lord, we so want to draw near to you and display you well, especially in our homes, Lord. I also want to thank you for what you did on the cross. Lord, you died to pay for immorality and contentiousness and idleness amongst all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much that you died for that and to cleanse us from that so that we are no longer under under condemnation. Lord, I pray that our discussion groups would be a time of encouragement and that you would help all of us grow in our understanding of how great your love is for us and be spurred on to follow you more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and just take out your homework. Um, that you picked up when you came in. Just I, I said this at the beginning, but again, just so you notice, we'll actually turn these in next week, and that's just to help us um, to have thought these things over before we go to the Christmas holidays, and then um, we'll actually discuss them in January, if that makes sense. But I really um, hope that it's an encouraging time, gives you a chance to think a little bit more about the lesson we had today. Um, we will discuss the homework you had about your household and talking to others in your household and just really encourage everybody to be encouraging one another in that. It's something that can be a hard place and that's what the body of Christ is for is to encourage one another with truth.